This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. The scripture that was read earlier came from the book of Matthew, the 17th chapter and the 20th verse. And it reads again as follows. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Today, we are a generation that are living in houses we did not build. Drinking from wells we did not dig. Living in realities we did not dream. And as I think about the future generation, I wonder, what are we building for them to live in? What foundations are we digging for them to build on? And what dreams do we have today that will become their reality. Every now and then, I'll drive past a beautiful church or cathedral and think about the fact that generations before us had so much less than what we have today, yet they were able to erect structures that have stood the test of time. Even as we build today, our structures can't even come close to the strength and character of what generations before us built. Are you hearing me? Yes, sir. In fact, prior generations built altars with marble and granite, beautiful structures that reflect a faith that could move mountains. Yet we scrape and pinch pennies trying to make ends meet and, to be quite frank, can't even replace the carpet in the church. And even if we decide to build something, we are excited about wood framing and sheetrock instead of carefully cut stone designed to match each other and to give glory to its designer and its workmanship. We have no vision. We have no dreams. We have no hopes. We have no adventure. We have little to no faith in doing or building anything worthy of the God we say we serve. We lack patience. We lack grit. We lack endurance. For if we can't have something ready right now, then we simply drop the project in favor of something that can produce for us a quicker return. So here's the question. If you knew that it would cost you more than you have to build something you would never live to enjoy, would you still build it? And what are you building today that people will still be talking about years from now? it seems to me that our current generation believes that anything requiring more than what we are prepared to give will never get done. Well, today I want to talk about something that is worth 
every last effort of our investment. And if we can understand it, then we can take comfort in knowing that our lives will not be in vain. I want to speak about staying the course. And we'll do so in a message that I've titled today, quite simply, Mountain Moving Faith. Mountain Moving Faith. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you now that you have brought us to the preaching hour. As we have declared before, you turn now this monologue into a dialogue. Speak through now your manservant who has prepared something, but it's only the thing that you want delivered that will matter. So anoint me afresh one more time. Take me to that throne room of grace and into that storehouse, the place where preaching gets easy, but also challenges the hearts and the minds of your people. Take us to the place where we can see the cross, but not just the cross, but the resurrection as well. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get to the details of today's message, let me paint a picture for you contextually. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, up to this really high mountain by themselves. All right? And while on that mountain, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, meaning that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Jesus was transfigured right before the very eyes of these disciples. And just as this was happening, the text tells us, there appeared before the disciples Moses and Elijah, and they were having a conversation with Jesus. This is what the disciples are seeing up on this mountain with Jesus transfigured before their eyes. Now, Peter, being Peter, thought that this was an appropriate time to interrupt the conversation and to say, why don't we build three altars? One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And what's interesting when you read the text is that while Peter was still speaking, there was a cloud that came down and the cloud covered them, meaning the disciples, not Jesus. The cloud covered them and then from that cloud, a voice was heard saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's what the text says. Now, <laughs> now hearing this, the disciples fell down on their face in terror. Now let me read what the, cloud, what the cloud said again. Listen carefully to what the cloud said. Peter and all of these people were talking. While Jesus was being transfigured, talking to Moses and Elijah, Peter opens his big mouth. The cloud falls down upon Peter and the disciples. And then the voice says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Here's my translation. Peter, shut up. Listen to my son. Now, I believe that's what happened here, and here's why. Because the text says they fell on their faces in terror. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. The way a lot of us sometimes read the text. No, it's Peter. The cloud fell upon them. That's what it said. And they fell on their face in terror when they heard God say, now is not the time to be talking. This is my son. In him, I am well pleased. Pay attention to him. I like the way that it reads. And I like it that way because <laughs> they were yapping. Shut up and pay attention to my son. And I'm just setting the context for you. 
it's a hard interpretation, but I think sometimes when we are in the presence of God doing some kind of a divine act, we have a tendency to speak too much. Our church and our generations and all of us are having a hard time moving forward because we spend more time talking than we do listening. The text then goes on to tell us in a moment of pastoral care that Jesus now comes to the scared disciples. And the first thing Jesus says to the disciples, don't be afraid. Did you see that? Jesus says to the disciples, do not be afraid. It's okay. Because they were terrified. But now they started to make their way down the mountain. All of this has happened. And now as they were coming down the mountain, scared, <laughs> the text tells us a crowd meets them. And out of the crowd comes a man who approaches Jesus with a petition right after they're coming down. Now, I'm painting the picture. The disciples are frightened. They're scared. They just got yelled at by God. And here comes now this crowd waiting for Jesus, and a man approaches them. Here's what the text says in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Now Jesus responds, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus then rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at a the moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Jesus, Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You got the context. I painted a picture of what just happened. Now, I must admit that this is one of those cases where I'm actually surprised at Jesus' initial response to the man who approached him. Beyond the fact that the man was dealing with a situation with his son that had to have been terrifying for him, the man was also coming to Jesus with a complaint about the inability of the disciples to meet his needs. In other words, it's like complaining to God that his church is of no use. Going to God and saying, God, your church can't help me. Hmm, how does that fit? How does that make you feel when, when you know that you've been going to churches with all of your issues and your challenges, saying you believe in a God and the church can't do anything to solve your problem? Hmm. Now, I'm not sure what drove Jesus' obvious irritation, and I'm sure by now the way that I've read it, you can sense it in the text. Right. But I suspect that it could be tied to the fact that the man having... <laughs> Un unmet expectations of his disciples might be a reason for the irritation. Who knows? It could be that the man was filing a complaint and suing the disciples as far as Jesus is concerned, and that might have irritated him. I don't know. The disciples, maybe their inability to solve the man's problem was actually bothering Jesus. Or how about Jesus not having an opportunity 
to really kind of enjoy and bask in his transfiguration. Have you ever been there where you take some time off and you've been replenished by God and then you come back to the church and all of a sudden it seemed like everything stopped until you got there. You didn't even have a moment to really kind of bask in the what just happened moment. But all of a sudden people are pulling and tugging at you. I don't know the reasons why Jesus might have been irritated. But all I know is that what he said was very interesting. He said, you unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. I don't know if you like that kind of Jesus, but that's the Jesus I really connect to. The Jesus that is really not ready to put up with the foolishness that many of us bring. Because half the time, the things that we want Jesus to fix are things that we can fix ourselves. And I've made it a habit of trying to only go to Jesus even when I pray for you for the things that only he can do. And pray your strength for the things that you can do. So I struggle with Jesus' response a little bit. Now, the object of Jesus' irritation, if you notice the text carefully, it was not the man. It was not the disciples. It wasn't even the crowd. <laughs> Jesus said, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus was addressing the present generation. See, you can miss it. Because you'll think he's mad at the man or mad at the disciples or mad at the crowd. Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation yeah, yeah, yeah. talking to a whole generation Jesus what are you doing and by calling the generation unbelieving and perverse Jesus was talking specifically to a people that were callous who had become so apathetic that they were stuck in their dependency on receiving and taking instead of persevering and trying to find a way to contribute and advance themselves for the word perverse literally means to show a deliberate and obstinate desire to behave in a way that is unreasonable or unacceptable, often in spite of the circumstances. So when Jesus called them perverse, he was actually saying, you, you all are gone. Furthermore, in Jesus responding to this unbelieving and perverse generation, he tells them to bring the seizure-suffering boy to him, at which point he performs an immediate exorcism by rebuking the demon, which was at the root of the boy's problem. Now, I don't want to get into the debate between psychiatry and religion, but I must say that I find it very curious that the man came to Jesus with a diagnosis that the boy was having seizures, and Jesus performs an exorcism. Is a thought here that all seizures have demonic origins? For our friends in the medical community would let us know that seizures and schizophrenia and things of that nature are mental or chemical disorders. So the question must be asked, how can we know the difference? How do we know what seizures need medication or what seizures need exorcism? And here's the hard part. Who gets to make that call? Is it time for the doctor or is it time for the priest? 
Who gets to make that call? But here's what I can tell you. If it is a call for the priest, are we confident that our generation has the kind of people with the qualifications to do what thus saith the Lord? For we spend so many time with entertainment that we miss the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God. So if it's easy to medicate, I might go that route as opposed to inaugurate the Holy Spirit. See, I'm just saying what I'm saying. Now, I'm not going to attempt to answer the question in this sermon because that's not what this sermon is about. But I just wanted to raise the issue because I don't like playing church. Either way, <laughs> let's get back. Jesus was talking to a generation that was not only fickle in their belief, in the power and the authority of God, but in their perversion, they had become demanding, disloyal, dependent, distrusting, unpredictable, cynical, sarcastic, sensitive, stubborn, and here's my favorite, entitled. Does this sound like any generation you know? Well. I'm just asking what I'm asking. I wonder. So I began this message talking about how the generation before us was able to build structures and accomplish things with much less than what we have today. And each generation, as we understand them, bring different things to the table. And my wife helped me with this, understanding this. In a lot. The silent generation before us brought patience and grit. The, the, the baby boomer generation brought us competitive and dedicated workers. Generation X brought us independent and well-educated peoples. The millennials, they brought us people who want to collaborate on everything. Generation Z brought us optimistic people who take no risks. And the jury's kind of still out on Generation Alpha. They're still in development. <laughs> but each generation will leave some mark on society, but what we got from the silent and the baby booming generations and generations well before them seems to be lost in many ways on us today. We bask in and enjoy the fruit of their labors, and we have little to no appreciation for what it cost them to provide what they provided for us today. I'm talking the truth. Think about your grandmother and your grandmother's grandmother. They, they, they did some work, yes, sir. some work that we take for granted today, almost as if they did nothing to bring us to where we are. I'm just talking about what I'm talking about. So as we think about the work and the commitment of generations before us, and as I talked about their tremendous sacrifice, I want to now pivot to understanding what Jesus meant. Are you all still tracking with me? I want to now, now that we understand all of that, I want to get to the point, Walter, of, of, of what Jesus really meant when he said, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Many scholars and theologians and preachers will tell you that this text is a 
proverbial figure of speech about overcoming even the biggest and most difficult challenges in your life. And they are saying that Jesus is saying that faith as small as a mustard seed can overcome the biggest challenges we face. In other words, we don't need to look at how big the mountain is in front of us, but rather we need to look at how big our God is. And for you to have faith as small as a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible to you. And I can tell you there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. But I wonder, and you all know me by now, I don't always like to just take what all preachers say <laughs> who don't necessarily spend enough time studying. Here's what I want you to hear. Do we know anyone, do you know anyone who actually moved a mountain because they had sufficient faith? Do you know anybody who actually moved a mountain because they had sufficient faith. <laughs> In fact, no one could have had more faith than Jesus, and I don't read nowhere in the scriptures where Jesus moved one mountain. So Jesus, why are you telling us if we have faith enough as a mustard seed, to, if we say to this mountain, be moved, I have faith, I have a lot of faith, and you ain't even moved no mountain to show me how to do it. So what are you talking about, Jesus, with your irritated self? And now listen, I challenge Christ because he can handle it. He can handle my anger. He can handle my pain. He can handle my uncertainty. He can handle my anxiety. And for many of us, you are going to a God that you don't believe can help you when you're feeling your most distraught. Selves. God can handle my pain and he can certainly handle my theological questions. So I say to God and I say to Jesus, help me understand what you mean when you say, if I have faith the size of a mustard seed, I could say to a mountain, move from here to there and it will be done and nothing will be impossible for me because I don't know how to get more faith than I've had. I've given everything up for you. How much more faith do I need? And there are mountains in my life that need to move, and I'm trying to move them, but I don't know how. Help me understand Jesus. Are you all with me? <laughs> and then this is what Jesus said. Just so you know, he answers back. <laughs> Jesus said, Son, Mountains aren't moved by individuals, they're moved by generations. Sit in that. You unbelieving and perverse generation. Wasn't that what he said? He wasn't talking to the man, he wasn't talking to the disciples, he wasn't talking to the crowds. He spoke to the generations and he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved. It will move from here to there, and it will be done. Mountains aren't moved by individuals. That's why Jesus himself didn't move a mountain having more faith than everybody else. He needed the generation to come alongside him so he can show us that with the faith that we can believe in something greater than ourselves, we can do the impossible. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking to your spirits. So let me illustrate. 
illustrate. <laughs> King Herod, at the time of Jesus, was considered one of the greatest builders of his time. Mm -hmm. Geography and the terrain of land didn't mean anything to King Herod. No matter where Herod wanted to build, if the land was not billable, Herod would make it billable. Geography didn't matter to King Herod. It didn't daunt him. It didn't stop him. And so King Herod built his palace on the edge of a desert atop an artificial hill. King Herod built his palace on the top of an artificial hill in a desert. Now, <laughs> archaeologists said that the only way that that could have been built is if you had a lot of slaves and a lot of workers and contractors and all kinds of people who had to be really, really invested in doing this thing. Now, I'm telling you this because I found out in a conversation I had earlier this week with a scientist who is now a chaplain upstate. We were having a, just a conversation, a theological conversation. I was talking to him about some sermon I preached. And he said to me, you know, I went to Jerusalem. And the text you're talking about, I was there. Mm -hmm. Where they call the Mount of the Transfiguration. Right. And in the distance, you could see where Herod's palace stood. And he said, right next to where Herod's palace stood on a mountain was a little hill with a plateau right next to it. And he said, when Jesus made that comment, Jesus was looking at the fact that the people who built Herod's palace on the top of that artificial hill dug what used to be a high mountain mm -hmm. to make the foundation for Herod's hill. I don't know if you got it yet. He said, <laughs> when the man was bringing his seizing son, Herod's palace and that smaller hill was in the background. So when Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. He was looking at Herod's palace and referencing what it took to move the old mountain in order to build the artificial one. <laughs> and so the question is asked, how do you move a mountain? One shovel at a time. And that takes time, endurance, Patience, perseverance, and yes, great faith. To make Herod's artificial hill was to one by one dig and carry. One by one dig and carry over years and years in order to move an entire mountain. It not only takes great faith to believe that such a task can be accomplished, it takes a whole generation to get it done. Wow. This is why Jesus spoke to that unbelieving and perverse generation. 
He was talking to a people that did not believe in anything anymore and had no faith, no grit, no patience to stay the course and to not give up while all the while believing that as big as this mountain is, it can still be moved if you don't lose heart. That's what Jesus meant by having faith, even a small amount of faith. To believe so much in what you're doing such that you won't give up or give in. It's staying the course no matter what obstacles may come your way. So while I can support my fellow brothers and sisters in the preaching office, <laughs> that if you don't have enough faith, you can't do great things, I like the interpretation that with faith, with the faith that you have, you can accomplish great things <laughs> if you are together. Yes. It's why the generations before us build great buildings even though they didn't have the money that we have today. They don't have the advantages that we have today. So what are we building? So let us not get weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. This is what Jesus meant. This is what he meant. Now, in preparing for this message, I did some research to, um, to look at a few impressive structures that took some time to build. One of the structures I came across, some of you may be familiar with it, is called the Cologne Cathedral. It took 632 years to build it. It was built between 1248 to 1880 and is a popular site to visit in Germany. I want to go there one day. At the time when construction began, Gothic architecture was, was kind of like the thing. And um, so they demolished this Roman-style building, and they built this cathedral. 632 years. Now, when they actually started building, it, it, it was being built uninterrupted for 200 years. Then they got into some financial problems, and then they picked it up again in the 19th century. Just think about that. 200 years to build. This cathedral nonstop until they hit financial problems. 632 years to build a church? Uh, remember what I asked you before? If you, would you still build something that you know you might not end up enjoying? Would you still do it? 632 years to build a church? And I use this as an example because someone had a vision for that building. But with subsequent believing generations after generations that were not perverse, the vision of that church became a reality. This is mustard seed faith moving a mountain. A bit at a time. One tedious step after another. What vision do we have today for building anything? And to be clear, I'm not talking about faith to build a church or some kind of building. I'm talking about the kind of, the kind of generation of people that despite the obstacles would still exhibit mountain-moving faith. And in case you need me to be clear, let me give you a few examples of what I mean by mountain-moving faith. Stay with me, church. <laughs> it was mountain-moving faith that took the Israelites 40 years to make it to the promised land after 400 years of Egyptian bondage. It was mountain-moving faith that took Haitians a mere 15 years from 1789 to 1804 to gain their independence because unlike other nations, they weren't having it. Mm -hmm. 
It was mountain-moving faith that took Jamaicans 453 years to gain their independence. It, it, it was mountain-moving faith that took the African enslaved to overcome 400 years of chattel slavery. Think about what I'm telling you. Somebody in the bottom of a boat believed that this was not the way. And if it's going to take 400 years, that's what it's going to take. But we're going to keep on fighting on. It was mountain-moving faith that took African-Americans 87 years to overcome Jim Crow. It was mountain-moving faith that took African-Americans 232 years to elect the first black president of the United States. I remember people saying, I won't see that in my lifetime. But there were people who still believed. Sometimes you just need a remnant. You don't need everybody to go. You just need a few to believe. Right. With just mustard seed faith. Not the whole shebang, kitten canoodle. It was mountain moving faith that built the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Amen. Which stands today. 207 years later. What's my point? It takes time to move mountains, but mountains can be moved. Mountains can be moved. And if you join me with your mustard seed faith and my mustard seed faith, we just might in a little while, if we faint not, we can have the greatest orchard anyone has ever seen. For eye has not seen. Ear have not heard, nor have entered into the heart of any man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But as I get ready to close, there is one particular building that required mustard seed faith. And this building was not made with hands, but with blood. For while we may build all the extravagant cathedrals we want, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were tore down, we have a building from God. Yes. A house not made with hands, eternal yes. in the heavens. Yes. Hallelujah. That building is the kingdom of God which resides in you and me. For indeed in this building, this earthly building, we, we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. Now he who has prepared for us this very purpose is God, who gave us his spirit as a pledge, as a commitment. I'm offering unto you my spirit. I go to prepare a place that where I am, there you shall be. I, oh, oh, by the way, in my building, in my mansion, there are many rooms. Uh, but, 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 you know, we walk by faith and not by sight. Wherefore, we are laboring constantly, wondering if all of what we're doing is going to amount to anything. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, don't give up on God, for he won't give up on you. Keep the faith. It may take a little while. It may not even happen in your generation or mine, but it will come to pass. Because yeah. I'm telling you, my brothers and my sisters, Christ and him alone is the foundation upon which any one of us must build. And when he died on Calvary's cross, he made an investment lasting now over 2,000 years. 
but he will come again. Yes, sir. So 632 years is a long time. I think 2,000 is a little more. Can you wait with me a little while longer? Can we stay the course just a little while longer? Until he comes and redeems us to himself? Is that investment worth it? Is all the sweat and the tears and the faith and the prayers that you have sown and the gifts and the giving and all the things that you've done, is it going to produce something that was worthy of your time? Brothers and sisters, I don't need mustard seed faith to tell you, yes, yes, his word is faithful and his word is true. And if you are indeed one of his beloved, then come out of this unbelieving and perverse generation. For in him, nothing will be impossible for us. But it requires mountain-moving faith. May the Lord richly bless you, my beloved.